Let me turn in the Word of God to the passage read a moment ago. Now these two parables that I read together are often taken together. And they do belong together in a certain sense, and yet they are distinct. And uh, I will acknowledge that initially I was going to pass over this parable, thinking that, well, I've done the previous one, and it's similar. But you know that Ulster phrase we have, the same only difference, so well, there are differences. In the previous parable, a man in a field makes a surprising discovery in this parable, the situation is wholly different than what is described here. We are also familiar with, and therefore it behoves us to study it. So we look at this parable under the heading, True Gain. True Gain. And you will have noticed, as one always tries to do, is to match the readings and the singings together, so that this message is reinforced and Whatever the theme is, <clears throat> even the children, we pray, understand. So what's the first thing we have before us? Well, the first thing is this. Seeking worldly riches. Seeking worldly riches. First of all, we note his occupation. He is described as a merchant. Now, this is a lawful calling. It's as lawful as the calling of the laborer. And as an aside, our English word emporium comes actually from this word that is translated rightly as merchant. So the emporer was the merchant and the emporium the place of merchant. So it's occupation, a lawful occupation. But then secondly, we must spend a little time with this, his preoccupation, seeking goodly pearls. Unlike the laborer, this man deals in valuables. What is more, he is actually seeking them. That is what he seeks. Now immediately there is an objection. Well, what could possibly be wrong with that? Is there anything wrong with that? Well, there are two things we must say in relation to that objection. The first one, I trust, is biblical and obvious, that work and wealth are not in themselves evil. There are some well-meaning people, and after they are converted, they seem to have a certain disdain for work and wealth. And uh, I do understand the sentiment, but we must not accept it. For in Proverbs 12, verse 14, we are told, A man shall be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth, and the recompense of a man's hand shall be rendered unto him. And of course, the context is often a contrast with the slothful, with the lazy. Proverbs 13, 2, A man shall eat good by the fruit of his mouth. And then, of course, Proverbs 27, and in verse 18, Whoso keepeth the fig tree shall eat the fruit thereof. So he that waiteth on his master shall be honoured. So work and wealth are not in themselves sinful. Now there was a fascinating question that was debated in the 
Minated. Can a merchant please God? We'll come back to that question because it pertains to this. So the first thing we have to say is that work and wealth are not in themselves equal. But secondly, it is the priority given to these things where the sin lies. The priority. I read a moment ago from Timothy and the Apostle Paul states most clearly the love of money is the root of all evil. The money itself is not the problem. It's the love of the money. And in 1 Timothy 6 verses 17 and 18 he adds, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. Wealth brings its own security to people. They become cut off from the variables of life and living. And they become isolated. And so they begin, because they are detached, to become vain and egotistical. And they think that everything is down to themselves. Be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches. Interesting. There's a reminder that everything is movable and temporary. All your riches are uncertain. The Lord in Providence can take every penny from you in a moment of time. Think of J.C. Ryle. His uh, father was a banker. Had two banks. What happened? He says, one from a youngster at the time, he was nine or ten, he said, got up in the morning, house, wealth, went to bed, complete poverty. Because unbeknownst to the father, the manager was, shall we say, mismanaging the business. <coughs> and in a single day, the whole lot crashed down. And they had to leave their family home. All they had was clothes that they could carry. Uncertain riches. The Lord can take everything away in a moment of time. Then he adds, trust, uh, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. There's where our trust should be. He giveth us richly all things to enjoy that. So everything the Lord gives us, there's a purpose to it. We're not to be hoarders, that they do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to distribute, willing to communicate, and so on. If in Providence, the Lord send you a fortune, a million pound, I suppose, that everybody usually thinks of. Uh, well, I'm not sure whether a million is worth a million, but that's another story. But anyway, people always think, well, if a million pounds. Well, if the Lord gives you a million pounds, what would you do? There's the test. Will you do good? Will you distribute? Give it away? Communicate? Look out for the Lord's people who are hard-pressed and who are in need. Well, what about this merchant? We mustn't lose sight of the merchant. Well, we are told that he is seeking. And this is an important word that the Lord uses. The idea of craving. 
Seeking is all-consuming. So it includes thinking, meditating, reasoning, inquiring. In other words, he is entirely swamped. He is preoccupied with these worldly riches. It dominates his life. It shapes his life. It governs every aspect of his life. When he's awake, when he's asleep, when he's out at the marketplace, all-consuming passion. And the implication is serious. He is not seeking the kingdom of heaven. He's not seeking the kingdom of heaven. We must get away from this Arminian idea that you know, everybody's seeking God. They're not. We must crush that error. Sinners are not seeking God. In fact, everyone is like the merchant. They're either like the laborer who's just going about their business or like the merchant in hot pursuit of possessions, of the things that belong to this world. All their planning is all put into this. The kingdom of heaven is nowhere to be seen in the sinner's life. The kingdom of heaven has absolutely no interest to him. His mind, his daily life, all that he's looking at, everything is taken up with the seeking of worldly riches. The plural is important there, isn't it? Pearls. Worldly wealth, worldly riches. He wants to strike it rich. <coughs> by means of his clever acquisitions and all his manoeuvrings and all his aspirations. He intends to be rich in this world's good. Now I posed that question earlier, can a merchant please God? Well, it originally comes from Chrysostom, 5th century, and he warned against Christians being consumed with merchantry, and if they are, they should be cast out of the church, he says. One of the marks of the church is discipline. That should trouble us, shouldn't it? Let me put this question to you. In light of this merchant, are you a workaholic? Are you so busy at work you haven't got time to pause, to read the scriptures, to fellowship with the Lord? Be time for spiritual things? Do you have your own closet time? Do you ever pray at all in your home? With your children, your wife, husband? Is there prayer even offered at any time from the 1st of January to the 31st of December in that home? Or are you always busy, always at work, always saying, of all these things that need to be done? My dear friends, if you die tomorrow, somebody else will take over and you'll be forgotten. Or come to your funeral, say nice things about you perhaps, but you'll be forgotten. Pass over, someone else will take it. Or be left behind. And so there was a position that of a professing Christian has become consumed 
with the pursuit of this world, they have no place in the church. Sobering thought. There are two other things we should note about this merchant. First of all, we can say that he was a man with a definite purpose. In that sense, we could say it is commendable. He had a definite purpose. There are far too many people, and they wander aimlessly through life. And they've no fixed calling, no fixed purpose, nothing. And they think everybody's going to subsidize them as they look around. They have no fixed purpose. He knew where and what he was looking for. There was no aimless drifting through life. So he had a sense of direction. We must give him that. And second, he was a man with a commendable purpose. It wasn't enough to have a purpose, but aspirations. He wanted the best in life. We could commend that in part. He doesn't want anything second rate, third rate, or even fifth rate. He doesn't want anything trivial. But though those two things are commendable, the Savior is clearly drawing attention to the fact that it has become all-consuming. This world and this life predominant. Seeking worldly riches. But then secondly, we must note, arrested by the greatest riches, for we are told who when he had found one pearl of great price went and sold all that he had and bought it. He was seeking goodly pearls. He was seeking the wealth of this world until this one unexpected discovery. And what is significant, my friends, is the impact it had upon him. Here was a treasure that possessed its own value. The greatest price. He did not give it value. He couldn't give it value. It had intrinsic worth in and of itself. All he knew was it possessed greatness. There was nothing like it in all the world. And this merchant is not in control of the pearl. In fact, the pearl is in control of the merchant. It has arrested him. It has taken over this man. He's been captivated, arrested, and thralled by the pearl. To help the younger ones understand the significance of this, I draw to your attention the prophet Isaiah. As he enters into the temple in Isaiah chapter 6. And as he goes into that temple. He is arrested. And overwhelmed. By what he saw. I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face and with twain he covered his feet and with twain he did fly and one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. Then said I, woe is me. In a sense, that is what has happened to the merchant. He's been arrested by the greatest treasure. Or if we turn to Isaiah 33, verse 17, thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. How do you explain a Christian? A Christian is one whom the Lord has arrested. And we have become enthralled with the king in all his beauty. The king has taken us away. And we sing this truth, actually. Psalm 45. As soon as I begin to read it, you'll know it. Psalm 45. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is a pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. That's how a Christian explains what has happened to them. <coughs> Going about our ordinary affairs in pursuit of worldly wealth and riches, looking for something that will satisfy us in this world and unexpectedly arrested, overwhelmed, enthralled by the greatest pearl that exists in all the world. Now the most central, comprehensive, and crucial doctrine in all the world is the doctrine of the Trinity. Now what is also remarkable is how the Lord Jesus Christ presents that doctrine to us, showing us how hugely important it is. In other words, our whole doctrine of God is overwhelming. And to discover, to be taught and to be instructed about the richness and the grandeur and the wonder and the sheer supernaturalness of God. It is life transforming. It's not that we sought God. It's that this God who doesn't need us came to us and arrested us like that merchant. Everything no longer mattered in comparison this wonderful work of grace that God arrested us. And I draw to your attention, John 14, quite deliberately, to try and help you understand why this pearl had such impact upon this merchant. Now you know the three chapters, 14, 15, and 16. And the three chapters set out for you from the lips of the Saviour, the doctrine of the Trinity. But this section of John 14 begins with the Saviour stating, Let not your heart be troubled. Now, unfortunately, uh, this passage is usually read at funerals. Um, I, I think most people at funerals, certainly if they're unconverted, they don't understand what the, what the passage is teaching. But I expect you to understand if you're a Christian. Let not your heart be troubled. The disciples are troubled. How are they going to face the future? 
Everything is so uncertain. Everything's about to change. So what does the Lord say to them? Does he say, well, you're going to need to go see this one, you're going to need to do that. No, he says, what you need for tomorrow and in a month's time is theology. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. What an astonishing, surprising answer. How are we to face the future? God is the answer, he said. How do we believe in God? Through Jesus Christ. You cannot believe in God in any other way. He says, believe also in me. So it's Christ at the centre. It's never Christ plus, Christ alone. In other words, the central solution to our restless, stressed, agonising heart trouble is theology. The whole doctrine of God. And in these three chapters that are so important, the Lord Jesus Christ sets before you that he's the revealer of the Father in John 14, 1 to 11. He's the sender of the Holy Spirit in John 15, 26. John 14, the Lord makes it clear to these disciples, this is the only way you can face the future. So here is his merchant. He is seeking worldly riches. And those who seek worldly riches, you know, they have all kinds of plans. What if I get these goodly pearls, if I get a pile of those and a bag, I will be set for life. And I'll do this and I'll do that. I'll have the other. Oh, how happy I'm going to be. How satisfied I'm going to be. And all these plans are made. How many of us have been there? And then supernaturally the Lord came and he just took it all away from us. And he said, here's your heart problem. You're trying to live in this world, in this life, without a thought of the kingdom of heaven without any thought of God. And we were enlightened, isn't that the phrase that is used in Scripture? Our minds were opened, the darkness was taken away. And suddenly, we realized for the first time how wonderful, how incredible God is, a whole plan of salvation, how remarkable and how fitting and appropriate and the scandal of the cross we love, Lord. The whole record of salvation is a joy to us. And the doctrine of God. You know, John and Edward says that before he was converted, he hated the sovereignty of God. Troubled him, annoyed him. Until he was converted, and suddenly, he says, I saw the grandeur of the beauty, the wonder of God's absolute sovereignty. He was captivated from that moment with the whole doctrine of God, with the revelation that God gave of himself. Are you captivated? I sometimes think, you know, that we are barely supernaturalists. We are more like atheists than we're prepared to admit as we go through life. 
But sometimes we like to pretend we're real supernaturalists on the Lord's day. But what about the other six days? Do we remain captive, arrested, enthralled with heavenly things? And how central is the kingdom of God? How central is God to your very existence? Well, that brings us to the third point. A similar one to the previous parable, selling all for true riches. So we're told he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now while these two parables were different and are different in their circumstances, they are similar in their consequences. And that's very important. So you see the point is this, every conversion is different. But there are constants, things that are the same for every comment. You know, in 1859, you've heard of the 1859 revival, but there was a controversy arose. And the controversy arose because there was a certain chap who started going around meetings, around Kells and Ballymen and so on, and he started saying that unless you put a time, date, and place in your conversion, you were not converted. It caused uproar. Lots of people suddenly lost assurance of salvation because they said, well, I can't do that. Ended up, of course, as these things naturally do at the General Assembly of the Irish Presbyterian Church, after lots of pamphlets were written and so on, and they came to a biblical Solution. Well, I need you to work all that out yourself. But it sorted the matter out. Very simple. There's no one template, a morphology of salvation, that you've got to go through these four, five, or six stages. So the context and the circumstances of a sinner's conversion differs one from another. But there are those things that are always present. What things are present? Well, very simply for the children. Once I was blind, but now I see. It's not wonderfully simple. There was a time I didn't understand a single thing. There was a time I wasn't even interested in spiritual things, but now, oh, I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded. Who's constant? They're there all the time. Well, I say to some, you know, some are brought up in a Christian home and they uh, may listen to somebody's testimony and they tell you about all the terrible, bad things they used to get up to. And they'll drone on about that for 40 minutes and then say, yeah, and then the Lord saved me, hallelujah, and they sit down. And some people sitting there listening to that say, well, I did not have that experience. Maybe I'm not saved at all. What's the solution? Very simply, the children know this answer. What is justification? That's the solution to that kind of view. So this pearl of great price is the kingdom of heaven in itself. Its value is beyond price. And for that kingdom, the merchant sells everything that he has. And that's the consequence. That's the outworking of it. Well, we can illustrate this for you, and we should. 
from Luke 18. And we'll read verse 18. A certain ruler asked the good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? You know the raccord. Verse 24, when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, who then can be saved? And he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. What is the demand of the kingdom? Uh, the needle, the needle's eye that Luke uses. It's the surgeon's needle. Fascinating, isn't it? And he says, easier for a camel and for this sinner with all their baggage, they're trying to haul all their baggage into the kingdom of heaven. The narrowness of the entrance strips everything away from us. That's why we enter. We leave our baggage behind us. Everything we abandon to get into this wonderful kingdom of heaven. But the rich man failed to appreciate Another did in the very next chapter in Luke 19 of Zacchaeus. Luke 19, 8, Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him fourfold. Well, what are we to make of Zacchaeus? Is this some sort of self-justification? The answer is no. Zacchaeus is indicating to you the results of his repentance. As a penitent extortioner, he needed a savior. Christ is that savior. And how do you know that he knows it? Because Jesus said to him, this day is salvation come to this house. For so much as he also was a son of Abraham, for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was Lost in the eyes of the Savior. Zacchaeus was one of the lost. And the evidence of his lostness was the fact that he was an extortioner, like the, this merchant. He was living for worldly things. He was trying to get a hold of all of the wealth that belonged to other people by any means and to have it for himself. But salvation altered his entire perspective. It altered his view of himself. And it altered his view of his occupation. Everything has changed. And the evidence of that salvation was to forsake his injustice, his extortion, and with that willingness to make restitution, to right wrong. That he had committed. That's a constant, isn't it? You ask a Christian, what will you give up for the Savior? And every Christian says, just like one of the disciples, we have left all, abandoned all, forsaken all. You know how he calls those fishermen? Follow me, they leave their nets. They leave everything behind and they go follow Jesus. 
That's how you know a Christian. Their eyes are fixed on Jesus Christ and they follow the Lamb whithersoever they go, whatever the cost, whatever the consequence. So that description of the conversion of Zacchaeus, while in one sense it's unique to him, you do see the consequences are true of all of us. Lost, needing salvation, the salvation is found in Christ. And that sinner saved says, now nah, the responsibility falls upon me to put right anything that I had committed that was wrong. Well, let's come to some points of application. Let me say first of all to you, all sinners are like this merchant. How do we know? Because the Bible says, all seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ. All seek their own. Philippians 2. 2 Timothy 3. We read, lovers of their own selves, covetous, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. As Zacchaeus demonstrates to you, Christ is central to salvation. All sinners are lost. You cannot find yourself, you know, this Eastern mystic idea. You find yourself well. Already, we have already found ourselves. We know what we're like. As soon as we can think about ourselves, we know. Who changes a sinner's life? Christ changes the sinner's life. And for those who are Christians, you will say, as you just have said, my life has been changed. By Jesus Christ. And secondly, we must say something about true and false repentance. How do we know that our repentance or any other synonym you want to use is true? Well, the answer is given in 2 Corinthians 7. Though I made you sorry for the letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle had made you sorrow, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice. Not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly man that you might receive damage by us and nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. So while Paul is writing about a specific issue, he draws attention that there is a difference between feeling regret, a mere sorrow, and a complete change of mind. So there is that worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. And he gives a remarkable description of what this godly sorrow is really like. This incredible analysis of true repentance that is put in stark contrast to the sorrow of the world that worketh death. Sorrow of the world simply leads to a hardening of heart to death. True godly sorrow leads to repentance not to be repented of. And if you want an example 
of worldly sorrow that leads to death. You have it in Judas, which had betrayed him when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself, and brought again the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned in that I have betrayed innocent blood. And they said, Well, what is that to us? See thou to it. They cast down the pieces of silver in the temple of the party and went and hanged themselves. The sorrow of the world worketh death. But godly sorrow. True repentance. Not to be repented of. What are its features? What carefulness it wrought in you. What clearing of yourself. What indignation. What vehement desire. What zeal. Yea, what revenge. So true repentance has unique characteristics. Worldly sorrow is momentary. It's emotional. And then it passes. And it leaves that person harder against the gospel. Harder against spiritual things demonstrating they never had true repentance. And then finally I leave you with this challenge. Where is your treasure? Your heart will be where your treasure is. Look at this merchant. His heart was with worldly riches until he was arrested with the pearl of greatest price. It took over his life who ruins, who, who rules your life? Who runs things in relation to your life? Who governs your life? Does Christ govern? Or does the world govern? Is your heart with Christ? Or is your heart with the world? There's always the preacher's prayer. But all who hear the word of God, our heart is with Christ. May the Lord bless.